If you believe his name is Victory, would you say amen? amen? Okay. Did you know that's also your name? There's a thought. In the Bible, you are called the overcomer. Actually, you're called the super overcomer. All right? The word that's used is the word hooper nakao. Because of his victory, we have the victory. All right? So he is victorious, he is victory, and so therefore he gave us his victory, so he calls us the overcomers, the hooper nakao. There's a sports um, leading clothing manufacturer in the world who really liked that term, and so they took it for their brand name. They're known as Nike. Nike is nakao. Nakao, the hooper nakao, the super overcomer. So every time you see a Nike emblem, be thinking, that's me. I'm the, I'm the overcomer, right? Because God said so. God called us victory because of what Jesus did on the cross. Is that not great news? It's great news. I'm going to invite you to go to the book of Romans. That's where my Bible is opened up to, Romans chapter 1. If you have a Bible with you, if not, you'll find them in the racks right around you, and you can follow along on the screen as well if you'd like to watch that way or maybe pull out your phone. Maybe you've got it electronically. So you can watch where we're going with Romans chapter 1. Um, I want to encourage you and remind you there's people watching online right now. So if you're watching online, welcome. Welcome to New Hope. Glad that you're watching that way. And if you're traveling this summer or this fall and, and you're missing services, remember you can live stream it during the 11 o'clock service. It's live streaming right now. Uh, just go to the New Hope website and you'll be able to follow along that way. I keep hearing from people every week who are doing that. So it's great, great encouragement. I'm going to pray with you before we jump into Romans chapter 1. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Let's start out this way. I'm going to ask you to start by asking God to reveal to you today an ability to understand his glory. So just start out there. God, would you reveal to me your glory? And then I'll pray. Go ahead and do that. Father, I know you hear the hearts of your people. And you certainly also understand what we're about to look at. And, and the depth of what this shows us about mankind. So we come before you just pleading, asking that you remind us for those who belong to Jesus, the victory has already been won. The victory over death, the victory over darkness. And we stand today as those who have been redeemed but extremely sensitive to the, fact, to the fact, Father, that there are those who do not yet know you, who are not in relationship with you. And so you give us this truth to shape us in your likeness according to your image, which you expect of us. So, Father, reveal to us your glory. Help us to see you more clearly as we work through this. We ask for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Last week we saw very clearly that Paul was arguing there are certain attributes of God that are clearly visible, things that can be seen in the created order. He said, what can be known is perfectly clear in creation. So we left off with a verse like Psalm 19.1, which you'll see on the screen, and it says this, the heavens are telling of the what, church? The glory. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. 
So they're doing their job. Their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. So the creation is giving glory to God. That, that caused me to start pondering other verses that emphasize the same thing. And immediately I was taken to Isaiah. I want, I want to show this to you. Isaiah 40, and this is God Himself speaking. To whom then will you liken me that I would be His equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Stars did not go off in rebellion against God. Stars did not abandon their purpose for which he called them. The created world does not revolt against God because God gave it boundaries. If you've not read the book of Job before, I really encourage you to do that, but especially Job chapter 38. Job, after going through a long time of suffering and really hard things in his life, began complaining and then questioning and wondering, and then God showed up on the scene. And God said to Job, stand up and brace yourself like a man, for I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Tell me if you know, for you are so wise." Who gave the oceans its boundaries and told their mighty waves they will go no further? See, God set up boundaries for all of his creation. And the boundaries have these limits of law, we call them. Our God, when he built the universe, built in operating systems. And those operating systems are laws. He built in laws of physics and he built in laws of morality. And you and I live and operate within the sphere of both of those realities. Physical law sounds like this. If I climb up on the roof of a building and jump off, I will fall. I know because of firsthand experience. When, when I was a young boy, my mom made me a Superman outfit. Because Superman was still really popular in the days when I was a boy, just like it is today. So mom made me a cape, and I decided to climb up on the roof of their two-story house. And my mom looked out the window and saw a body falling down, right? Because I decided I could jump like Superman and I could fly, but I discovered the law of physics. I discovered gravity. Now, I determined in my mind that I must have misunderstood the law. I didn't jump right, so I climbed back up on the roof, right? Because it didn't break any bones the first time. I thought, well, I'm going to try this again. I did it three times before my mom came screaming out the door, what are you doing? I understand the laws of physics. If I jump from the roof of a building, there will be immediate consequences. It's called the law of gravity. In the same way, God's moral law has built-in consequences. There are results of pushing against his boundaries. I said a moment ago, the created world does not revolt against God. I need to qualify that statement. Most of the created world does not revolt against God. There are ever, however, two entities who do. Two entities who have been given free will. The created order of the angels and the created order of man. Both man and angels were given free will. Some angels, in rebellion against God, decided to revolt, and we call them demons. They are fallen angels. Mankind rebelled against God, and therefore we have a fallen planet. It's called fallen for a reason, because of the darkness. And the rebellion belongs to those two created orders who were both given free will. 
As we move into Romans 1 right now, we're going into verse 21. We need to understand again the cause of God's wrath because in verse 18, we saw Paul say, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, meaning present tense. There's evidence of it today. How do we understand that? We looked at that last week. If you missed it, go back and catch it. But let's go forward into verse 21 so he can make the next stage of the argument. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. The word for simply carries the thought forward. Everything that he said up to that point, he uses the for as a result. Their result is they know God, and yet they chose, Paul says very specifically, to reject So God is justified in his wrath because of man's willful rejection. So people refuse God's boundaries and therefore suffer the consequences, the inevitable result. God told us very clearly, as we saw last week, you can be absolutely certain the suppression of this truth is not accidental. It's very much intentional. I'm going to give you four ways right now. You're going to see it on the screen. It's in your notes and your bulletin. You might want to track it yourself. Four ways you can identify from this verse he's just listed, the rejection of God by mankind. He's listed them very quickly. Here's what he said. We dishonor him. There's a thanklessness to him. People, as a result of that, become futile in their speculations, and then they become dark in their hearts about him. Those are the things that we're going to break down. Here's what I want you to notice. The rejection of God is listed in a descending order. It begins with refusing to glorify God. It leads to being thankless. And then it translates over to the individuals who become futile in their speculations about where did I come from then if I didn't come from him? And then become very dark in their hearts because of the rejection of God. Let's go to the first one, the fail to honor God. The word that's used there for honor is the word doxadzo. And in your Bible, it might say, fail to glorify. They're both the exact same word. So you see this word doxadzo on the screen. It's one of four Greek words you're going to get this morning. And it literally means to render something glorious, to esteem it, or to magnify it. Now, how do I do that? How do I put a magnifying lens on God? Because Paul is saying the biggest fail in the universe is to fail to give God glory. The premise of his entire argument of this first chapter of Romans that we've been looking at is glorifying God. So that's why I asked you to pray, God, will you help me to understand your glory? Because of this church, you were created to glorify God. It's our purpose. You're looking for purpose? You're wondering, why am I here on planet Earth? What am I supposed to be doing? What is my purpose? God says, here's your purpose to glorify me. If you've never read Psalms 148 before, I'd encourage you to do that because the writer King David starts out by just saying praise him and then he gives a big laundry list of sea monsters and fish and stars in the sky and the sun and the beach sand and us, his created beings, our responsibility to praise him. If you were raised in a denominational church, maybe you weren't raised in church at all, but perhaps you were raised in a denominational church, you might be familiar with this statement of the the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It reads like this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. 
If that's our purpose, if that's the reason he built us to fail to give God glory is the ultimate insult. It's the ultimate offense. Because of Leviticus 10, God says things like this, I will be treated as holy. I will be honored or glorified. So you ask yourself logically, how do I do that? I'll ask this question of you and you can respond based on what you understand, but can I add anything to God? No. You can't add anything to God, so how do I glorify Him? Let's understand this word glory. I told you I gave it to you in the Greek language. It's doxadzo, but look with me on the screen at the Hebrew word, and the, the word is kabod, and it means to make something heavy, weighty. If I can't glorify Him by adding to Him, I can't make Him weightier. He's already complete. He's God. So how does this work? I can magnify Him. I can let others see Him through what He's done in me. I can bring glory to Him through praise. So what can I do to glorify Him? If glorifying Him is exalting Him, what can I do for this one who is supremely worthy of honor? Well, for me, it helps me to translate it over to a sporting analogy, and so maybe it'll help you that way. We have no problem bringing glory to individuals whom we celebrate in sports settings. So let's translate ourselves over mentally to Spartan Stadium, okay? We're there, thousands of people are gathered, we're watching the teams play, and on the field, the green and white team decides they're going to go for a long pass, and the quarterback steps back, and he launches it, and the receiver is wide open, and when he receives it, runs into the end zone untackled, and the crowd erupts with praise, and they begin giving praise and glory and honor, and high fives are going on all over the place. Celebration erupts because of the victory of the one on the field. His name is Victory. The crowd understands what it is naturally to worship and to praise and to celebrate. So we're watching the Olympics this week, and I'm kind of watching myself, and perhaps some of you have been watching it, and maybe you've seen some of the swimming competition, and there's this little unknown individual who's been swimming this week. His name is Michael Phelps, and, and, and this guy has had some glory bestowed upon him over the course of the years, right? 21 gold medals coming into Wednesday night's competition. When he begins entering into a race against an individual from South Africa who defeated him four years ago at London, Michael has trained in such a way that he's decided, I'm not going to be beat again, even though I've already got 21 gold medals, I'm going for another one. So he enters into the water with the understanding, this 200 meters is going to define whether or not I earn back that title. He not only defeated the swimmer that he was up against, but he left that swimmer in fourth place. Now, what was interesting to me was to watch Michael as he came up out of the water looking at the clock, and he very nonchalantly glazed, gazed to see what he did, and then the roar of the auditorium filled his ears, and in response, you saw Michael slide up onto the rope dividing the swimming lanes and begin to do this. Bring it. Bring me your glory. Bring me your honor. Bring me your praise because he deserved it. The accomplishment was phenomenal. 
Can we celebrate God's weightiness this way? Here's a challenge for you to consider. It's very comfortable in a church setting like this for some of us to praise and raise our hands to God. Some people begin swaying. Some people begin singing more loudly because we're in a room where we're among other believers, right? But let's imagine, just for a moment, going back to the sports analogy again, we take an individual and we dress that individual in maize and blue colors, okay? No, I'm blowing a few of these out of the water with that thought. Okay, so you got an individual dressed in maize and blue, and we're going to take him over to Spartan Stadium, and we're going to plant him in the student section among all the green and white. Now, let's say that the maize and blue team has done something amazing on the field, and that young individual who's dressed in maize and blue is sitting in the student section, and he watches his team be victorious. Do you think he's going to be on his hands praising and giving glory, or is he going to be sitting on his hands because he's seated among the enemy? He's seated among those who are not like-minded. He's seated among those who are not giving glory and praise in the midst of what's going on. So how do we understand what this translates over to us? A great many believers are sitting on their hands when it comes to praising God. So let's flesh it out. How do I bring him glory in the midst of my day, even when I'm among other people who don't think like I think and don't believe like I believe? Bringing him glory requires action on your part. You have to do something tangible and concrete. And it's not too late to do this, parents, even if your children are grown. And maybe you're looking back over your, the time of raising your children. You think, I didn't do such a good job with that. It is not too late. Try and see if this doesn't stimulate conversation. In a very practical fashion, in the midst of your day, begin identifying things that you can praise God for and praise him out loud. God, thank you for your provision. Thank you for what you did. Do it in front of your adult children. Do it in front of your young children, parents of young children. I started doing this with my kids when they were really little. Walking through the woods or on vacation, walking along a lake shore, I began talking about God's creation. And very fluidly through their teenage years, we just kept it up and kept doing it. And so into their adult years, I kept praising God in front of my kids for things that God had blessed me with. So I was not un unfamiliar with the thought two years ago to say in front of my kids when I picked up a, a new Mac with a 15-inch screen to say, look at how good God is. He created a Mac and gave it to me, right? And my kids recoiled by saying, what? God didn't create Max. And I said, yes, Scripture says all good things come down to us from the Father of heavenly lights, right? Okay, so God created the sand that makes the glass for the screen. God created the gold that goes inside for the, the, the instruments. God gave us the intellect to be able to put it together in a very practical fashion. Look for ways to bring praise to God. Are you going to get a look from people? Absolutely. People are going to look at you like, what? When you say glorify God, I praise God, I bring him honor, people are going to give you a look. But it's worth it. Because Scripture says this in Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. That means speak it out loud. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Or 1 Corinthians 10 says this, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What does that look like? You going kayaking this summer? Praise him for his creation. You putting money in the offering box? Praise him for his provision that you're able to do that. You going out on the beach? You going fishing? 
Praise God for his beauty. You holding a baby in your arms? Praise God for the human reproductive system that we can make more of these little creatures. Going to school, going shopping, going to work. Look for ways, look for the obvious. See if it doesn't stimulate conversation among the people you're hanging out with. See if it doesn't make you walk a little taller, maybe a little more confident, perhaps a little more bold because you're bringing glory to the one who's worth it. Why, Mark, are you hammering this? Because the person far from God never does this. So if God doesn't get it from his people, who's he gonna get it from? Because God says they fail to give me glory. And number two, they fail to give thanks. I find it very interesting in verse 21 when he says they fail to give thanks to see that thanksgiving is included as an expectation to God's revelation. He expects us to do it. Because fallen man, people who are not in relationship with him, can't give him thanks because they won't even acknowledge his existence. Here's an example for God setting an example for us. God giving thanks to God. I'll ask you a question why he did this in just a minute. Matthew chapter 15, you find Jesus on the shore, and he's on the shore of a beach, and thousands of people have surrounded him, and he recognizes they're hungry, and he wants to meet their need. So he gives them some instructions. Look with me on the screen. Verse 35 of Matthew 15. He directed the people to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fish. And what, church? Giving thanks. God thanking God. Why does God do that? Jesus said, Father, I know that you always hear me. I'm not doing this for my benefit. But for those who are watching God giving God thanks, setting the pattern for us. Because the consequence of failing to honor God, the consequence of failing to thank God, produces an effect. Man becomes consumed with ineffective speculation about their origins and about their purpose. Why am I here? That leads us into number three, these futile speculations. This term that Paul uses here encompasses all of man's godless reasoning. There's your, your next, your third Greek word. There's four of them this morning. This word, matayu. And it literally means somebody who's becoming wicked or becoming adulterous. People who are not in relationship with God set out on a quest for wisdom. Any other wisdom other than God. And they do it through human speculation. Because we are pre-wired, we are hardwired to want to know where did I come from? What are my origins? There's a need to make sense of everything. And because of man's persistence need to recognize anything other than God, has to recognize something greater than himself, he has to make a substitution. Something has to fill that void. So Paul says they became futile. There's an action involved there. Here's an example for you. Um, a couple years ago, there were two MSU professors attending here who um, were not in a relationship with Christ, but they began coming to New Hope because they're trying to understand the Bible and, and exploring all things religious, quote-unquote, and wanted to understand the things that we were talking about here at New Hope. And so during the time of their coming, um, they approached me in the hallway and said, um, we're thinking about inviting a group of other MSU professors over to our house for a discussion. We would like to talk about the origins of evil and why is there so much evil on this planet. Would you be willing to come to our house and engage with us in that conversation? 
<laughs> yeah, all over that. So I said, yeah, all over that, okay? Now, their next question to me was, now, in the midst of the conversation, this took place in front of the drinking fountain down the hallway, they said, so what exactly would you cover if we invited those people over? What would we talk about? Well, I gave them the biblical explanation. I said, here's what God's word says. Here's how we understand the presence of evil. And I watched the color drain from their face. And the response was this. We'll get back to you. They never did. Understand this, church, to reject God's truth, to reject God is to reject the greatest reality in all the universe. It's the only truth that gives us understanding of everything else. But there's a conscious effort to constantly push it away. No, I don't want to hear that. And that rejection leads to an emptiness. And an empty soul cannot remain empty. It's like a vacuum. It has to be filled. It has to fill it with something other than what it's rejected. So emerging as the primary byproduct of these futile speculations is mythology and idolatry and the false worship of other things. So we're told by Paul this useless, ineffective speculation leads to the final outcome. Number four, a foolish, dark heart. So track it. The heart failing to honor God, the heart failing to thank God, that heart becomes futile in speculations. And ultimately, that heart shows the depth of its darkness with really dark behavior. In the next week, we're going to be talking about the very dark behavior of humankind. I'm just giving you a heads up. What's coming next weekend is a reflection of what was just mentioned here. The pursuit of man to go after things other than God has led to very, very dark things. And I want to remind you, the Bible is incredibly blunt. So parents, just a heads up on that. Just know that what we're going to be talking about, the things that are going on in the world around us as we go into it next week, we're going to be straight on with it because we want the full counsel of God. So Paul says their foolish heart was darkened. Foolish is the word unintelligent. The hearts are dark, and it brings out this other facet of sin, that it's never brilliant to walk in evil ways. The, the heart today is used different than what it was in the first century. When you and I think of the heart of a person, we think, oh, his heart is broken. Or his heart is full of joy. He just won a gold medal. Well, we think of that as being the seat of emotion, right? That is not the way they thought of it in the first century. The seat of emotion was thought to be the gut. So you'll find phrases in the Bible like, oh, his gut ached for them. The heart was understood to encompass the entire being of a person. Dr. Robert Mount said it way better than I just did, so let me show you his quote on the screen. He said it this way, In the first century, the heart is the center of the inner life. From it, the person's direction is determined. His whole course is shaped. His basic commitments formed. When Paul's using the word, their dark, foolish heart, he has that thought in mind. That when man surrenders a relationship to God, he's exchanging God for darkness of his entire being. So to turn from God is to turn from the light into darkness. 
And what accompanies that departure of the heart is a deep, dark immorality. It walks hand in hand. Spiritual darkness and moral perversion are absolutely inseparable. And this God who demands glory is calling it out. Before we head into that component, I need to frame this very quickly of what we just looked at. God made the universe. He built in operating system. He built in laws of morality. And in a moral universe, it is impossible to turn from the truth of God and not suffer the consequences. All the connected evil surrounding it is a consequence of the rejection of God. So here's what Paul's saying. People know enough to glorify God. They know enough to bring glory to him, but they withhold it. They do not act on the knowledge they have, so they fail to be thankful. And this lack of honoring and this thank of the lack of gratitude leads to this false thinking of speculations, ultimately producing a dark heart. Paul is about to show us this leads to an exchange. It leads to a perversion, a perversion of worship a perversion of social life, a perversion of sexual life. The things that God designed us and built us for have become the sad legacy of man's refusal to bring God glory. So verse 22 says, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. It has been my experience that people do not typically recognize the reality of their situation. It's why God says, I give you the Holy Spirit. Christians need the Holy Spirit because God says, the Holy Spirit, he's gonna be your instructor and he's also gonna be the one that brings conviction upon you when you commit wrong. People typically do not recognize the reality of the situation they're in. Paul's case in point, they think they're wise. They think they're super intelligent, but they became fools. God says, you think you're so smart. You think you've got all knowledge. You think you've got all wisdom. Here's a reality check. In reality, you're rendered fools. Verse 22 says they became fools. This is the last Greek word for this morning, and I want you to see it. It's this word moraine on the screen, and it's probably going to make you think of an English word. What does it make you think of? Moron. Moron is the root. It comes from moraine. To become insipid. If you're not familiar with that, it's to become dull. To act as a simpleton or become foolish. There is only one other place in the entire Bible where that phrase is used. Jesus is talking to a group of his followers and he says to them, what good is salt if it's lost its saltiness? It's become good for nothing except to be scraped up and shoveled out into the streets and trampled under by the feet of men because they use salt as a preserving agent. This word, moraine, to lose its savor shows us that contained within Paul's statement is this idea of a mental dullness as a result of this action of rejecting God. So those who in their quote-unquote wisdom and brilliance reject God are not entering into some wonderfully intelligent life, 
but a life in which is a comparison with a relationship with God is boring and flat and answerless. That's a word? No answers. Any attempt to be wise apart from God makes us just the opposite because it removes the potential of what could be. So God says the greatest fool in all the world is the person who exchanged my wisdom, my glory for man's wisdom? If you think I'm being a little bit too hard on this, I want to back it up and show you. It comes right from the word of God. Look with me on the screen, Psalm 14.1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That same foolishness deludes people into thinking they're wise. I got it all figured out. I know things that God doesn't know. So Paul says in verse 23, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God. Exchange is a very important word. It plays in heavy to where we're going next week. It's this Greek word, alasso, to change. To change something from its intended purpose. To make something different. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God. Now, incorruptible in your Bible might read immortal. They both mean the same thing. It means not decaying, something incapable of decaying. So the Bible speaks of the total absence of God decaying in any fashion. The very thing that is absolutely inseparable from our physical existence. God says it's true of me. I do not decay. You do decay. You and I, church, are rotting. I know it's kind of shocking to hear, but it's 12.05 and it's hot in here and I need to catch your attention, right? We are rotting from the moment we were born to the moment we die. It's a series of decay. That's why we need physicians. We need eye doctors. We need heart doctors. We need to be monitored, trying to prop us back up because we decay. God is immortal. We are mortal. Therefore, it is absolutely ludicrous to exchange the one who exists outside of creation for that which is trapped in creation, to exchange the one who knows no weakening for those who know day after day what it is to diminish, to exchange the one who never fails for that which fails continually. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm I'm almost done, just bear with me on this. If you're a believer in Jesus, I want you at this moment and throughout this week ahead of you, consider the enormous power of darkness, the enormous power of the domain of Satan. God exists outside of creation. God knows no weakness. God never fails. Yet man is deluded into exchanging all of that for a cheap substitute. That's missing the glory of God, church. And it screams of abysmal ignorance and the awesome power of Satan to delude. When people can worship, and they will worship, and they can worship a God who does not decay, but choose to worship that which does decay, a copy of a copy of a copy. You and I were made in the likeness of God. And, and Scripture saying we don't even worship ourselves. We worship a copy of ourselves, a copy of a copy, a, a total delusion. 
So verse 23 says they exchanged that for an image in the form of corruptible beings, man, birds, four-footed animals, creatures. You see, church, it's not an accident that the Ten Commandments begin with, you shall have no other gods before me. Why did God need to remind us of that? Because he'd said it for centuries before that. He's told Moses to put it in writing. Why did he need to remind us? Because it's our predisposition. We are predisposed to that. Refusing to acknowledge God, mankind is left with this God-sized hole because we're built to worship. We will worship. If not the true God, we're going to worship something else, God of our own making. Now, you won't often find me quoting Voltaire. Um, and if you're familiar with him, you know why. Uh, he was born in the 1600s, and Voltaire would, did everything he could to be derisively sarcastic about the church. But he kind of nailed it on one particular word, quote, look on the screen. God made man in his own image, and man returned the favor. Whoa. He's right on. Since time began, man has developed countless systems to replace the worship of true God. And by rejecting the knowledge of the true God, some of you are not going to like this, religion is born. Man has rejected God. Man needs something to worship, so Man-made religion is born because we are by nature very much naturally religious. 84% of the world's population of 7.4 billion people identify with a world religion, an organized religion of some type. Man-made religion exposes the embarrassing systems that we've concocted to replace God. Birds were worshipped in ancient Egypt and in Rome. The Egyptians, they worshipped hawks and storks. And then they degraded down to worshipping insects. The Romans, they worshipped the eagle. No wonder the Jews reacted the way they did when they brought the eagle into Jerusalem and put it up in front of the temple. That was their God. They worshipped it. And lest we think modern man has risen above all of this, today you will find among the Hindu world the worship of almost in various forms 300 million gods, small g, believing that some individuals translate over through karma stages into insects and then into various forms of animal stages. Buddhists, very similar. They're actually in, in Sri Lanka worshiping at the Temple of the Tooth, which is a leftover tooth from when Buddha died and he was cremated. Millions of people go and bow down before that tooth every year. The monumental ascension of the occult and of astrology and of reading horoscopes and consulting tea leaves and chasing after tarot cards that just screams out of everybody doing everything they can to run away from God, the one who demands glory, saying, I'll take anything other than that. And the ultimate personification of the humans abandoning God is going to be the worship of Antichrist. Because when he shows up on the scene in the last days, he will demand everyone to worship him. It's, it's dark, right? It's like everything I said it was. It's dark stuff. Praise God, if you're a believer in Jesus, that you were rescued from it. Praise God. Because where we're going next week is even darker than what we've talked about. And the exchange of God for something else is absolutely mortifying. 
So I hear a voice, a distant voice, echoing down through the ages, and it brings me courage, it brings me hope, it brings me strength. And we started with it a half hour ago. I close with it now. Look with me again on the screen in Isaiah 40, 25. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. It's a great verse. Some of you will recognize that it's setting up one of the all-time favorite verses of the church. Isaiah chapter 40, when God says, when you think that you're being ignored, when you think, believer, that you're going through tough times on your own, when you think no one notices, pay attention to Isaiah 40 and this God who never slumbers. Verse 27 says this, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. I want to take it a step further. My favorite passage from when I was in flight school in college, God says this, verse 30, though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Why can he say that? Because our God has the victory. And so therefore, we have the victory. So we've looked at the four ways people reject God. Let me give you four ways to check yourself. Am I honoring God? This is not going to be on the screen. This is just evaluate yourself. Just check yourself right now. How are you doing with this? First of all, do you bring God glory? No judgment from me. I'm just asking you what I'm asking myself. How am I doing at bringing God glory? Am I putting it out there? Number two, are you translating thanklessness into thankfulness? Bring your gratitude, church. Your life, your resources, your intellect. Bring it to the table every day. Translate it into thankfulness. God, I get to to do this for you. Futile speculations, let me tell you, no futile speculations needed. We have the living word of God. Can't get any better than that. No speculation needed. How about this issue of dark hearts? If you belong to Jesus, you've already dealt with the issue of the dark heart, right? There is no dark heart for those who belong to Jesus because Scripture says, though my sins be as crimson, he has washed me whiter than snow. That's you. So dark heart doesn't apply. So check yourself. Where am I at in that scale? How am I doing? Because of his great capacity, the Bible promises he is mighty to save. Somebody say amen to that. And that means he is mighty to forgive. That's a great God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the comfort that we enjoy here in America being able to study things like this. It may not always be this way, but for now we're grateful for it. We could be grateful if we were in a tent. But we're here, and you've given us the privilege of looking at your word. Now we ask that you would apply it to our life. Speak into us, God. Let us walk boldly before you this week. 
I pray for your encouragement and I ask for it for every person who's gathered here that they will discover this week what it is to bring you greater glory. In Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week.